All right, so you take two guys and you give each of them a separate task. Build a fence, not together, but separately build your own fences. You come back at the end of the day, guy one has done a great job. That is a good fence. Guy number two only has three planks up. And you ask him, what in the world? Why didn't you get more of the fence built? And he says, I, I don't understand it. I had the wood, I had the nails, and I had the screwdriver. But it just takes so long to hammer these nails in with a screwdriver. <laughs> and you would laugh in his face and say, well, yeah, it took you so long because you didn't have the right tools. Why in the world are you trying to drive in nails with a screwdriver? You know, I think the same thing can be said about us spiritually sometimes. Think about this. If you struggle with the same sin over and over, and it seems like your entire Christian walk has been defined by trying to overcome or picking yourself back up from the same sin, it might be that there really isn't anything wrong with you. There is nothing so uh, addictive about this that you can't overcome it, but it could be that you're not using the right tools. If God were to talk with us about a particular sin in our life that we keep struggling with, I think he would say to us, what have you done to overcome it? And we would say, well, I've prayed to you. And he would say, oh, that's great. I love to help. That's a good start. What else have you done? And we would say, well, I've tried to do better. And God would say, well, that, that is great because personal responsibility, personal accountability, growth, maturity, all of those are essential to the Christian life. What else have you done? And we might think for a minute. What else have you done in your life to overcome sin? And we might tell God, I haven't done anything else. What do you mean? And God would say, no wonder you're struggling. You haven't used all of the tools that I've given you. So that's introduction point number one. Introduction point number two is this. What if I ask you to come vacuum my office? Now, we're Christians, so most of you have a very giving spirit, and I'm sure you'd be glad to do it. But there would be some obstacles. First of all, I'm not in my office right now. I'm at our church building. Second of all, you may not know how to get to our office. You might say, well, this is a unique space, and I don't really know how to vacuum in an area like this. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're hurt. Maybe you're older, and you can't do things like that anymore. And so there might be some obstacles. But by and large, most of us would be able to vacuum. Well, why is that? We've done it before. We've got some experience and even if we haven't vacuumed, even if you're so uh, lucky in life, maybe that you haven't been forced to clean up a mess that you helped make, you've seen vacuuming done either in person or on TV. And so it's an easy task because we're all familiar with the basic concept. But then what if I ask you to tackle a different problem, maybe a problem that you're less familiar with? What if I ask you to fix the plumbing? Say an elder at your congregation or a member came up and said, hey, we need you to fix the plumbing, the, the uh, bathroom, the toilet, the sink. None of them are working. Can you help us? Now, for most of us, that would be a harder problem to solve than the vacuuming thing. Well, why is that? I have no training in that. And to be honest, I've seen very, very little of it done in my life. And so that would be a harder help uh, for me to give than would be vacuuming. Did you know that there are commands in the Bible that are like these two examples? Now, some of them are very easy. You know, some of Christianity, you and I were going to do anyway. I didn't want to murder someone, and so I haven't. But then there are parts of Christianity that are harder. Maybe it's the opposite of what we actually want to do naturally. Uh, maybe we're just inclined to like this particular sin, and so we have to fight it. I, Jesus said do that, but I don't want to do that. We have to do it anyway. Or it could be that the command is hard to obey because we've simply never seen it obeyed. We've never seen it lived out. Now, there are commands that are commonly obeyed. Most of us have done them before. I'll give you just two quick examples. What about singing? Now, you may have a terrible singing voice. 
And that's okay by and large if you do. But think about singing. How hard is it to sing? I like the definition that Buddy the Elf gave. He said, it's just like talking, except louder and longer, and you move your voice up and down. All of us basically know how singing works. And so can we improve our understanding of the lyrics? Absolutely, and we should. Can we even try to make our singing voice better as a gift to those around us and to give God our best? Absolutely, we can, and we should. But we don't need as much instruction on singing, maybe some other things, because we've seen it done so often. Well, what about preaching? If you were asked to give a lesson, uh, maybe to uh, some of the women that you work with or to uh, fill in because the preacher is sick on a Sunday, could you do that? Now, I'm not saying preaching is easy because it's definitely not. You have to live it out in your life first. You have to do a lot of study, preparation. You can even study how to be a good uh, preacher just in the way that you deliver the message to make it easier to understand. But by and large, you and I know what a sermon like looks like. Someone gets up, they stand up in front of the congregation or stand up before a group like this. They tell what the Bible says. They tell how you can apply it. And then they sit down. You know not to lay down on the Lord's Supper table. You know not to sit in the back, not to wear pajamas, not to take it casually. You know it's serious business. And so while we can improve our preaching, of course, by and large, we know how preaching works. But what about some other commands? Maybe things that we haven't seen carried out. And that's why we have this longer introduction. I want, I want you to understand that this is not something that, that I think we do very well, the idea of confession. And it's not something I think any of us have, have by and large, tried, nor have we seen it uh, mirrored or shown to us as an example by the people that are around us. So I wanted to use this longer introduction to get you to see that, that maybe it's a command that's given, that's not obeyed, and maybe it's a tool that God has given us that we don't often use to overcome sin. So let's jump into the lesson tonight and think about that. Now, our text for tonight, <clears throat> excuse me, is James chapter 5 and verse 16. Now, we won't spend much time in James, but if you want to look there I'll, I'll, or I'll read along for us. James says in chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So here's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to talk about the confession of sin. So we'll talk about and try to answer these three questions. What is confession? What does confession look like? And then what does confession do for us? Oddly enough, unlike most lessons, we won't spend much time in James in the book where this verse came from. And I don't like to do that to skip around all over the Bible. I know the sum of God's word is truth. And so we have to do that to understand everything. But I usually like to stay within the context. But the truth is, James doesn't say anything else about how to carry out the command he's given us. Confess your faults one to another. Okay, James, give me a roadmap to do that. What does that look like? Who do I pick? How do I choose a person? What do I say? Do I confess everything or just things that I struggle with? James doesn't answer those questions. And as a matter of fact, no one spot in the Bible is going to completely answer these three questions. No spot in the Bible is going to completely tell us how to obey what James has just told us to do. And so we'll look at a few places in Scripture that will help us to answer these three questions. And so the first thing that we're going to address is, what is confession? The word confession comes from a Greek word, and I'm no Greek expert, but I'm pretty good with Google, and so I can look up these things and pull some meaning from them like you can. So even if you're not a language expert, don't let it scare you. Uh, it can be common enough that someone like me can get to it and understand it and learn from it. But the word confession comes from a, a Greek word, homo legeo. And we understand and are familiar with 
both of those, homo meaning the same, and logo meaning word. And so what we have when we put those two together, homo legeo, is the same word. And so that idea is that when we confess something, all we're really doing is saying what was already true. I'll give you an example. The Ethiopian eunuch, as he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, was Jesus the Son of God because he confessed it? No, of course not. Jesus was always the Son of God, whether or not the Ethiopian eunuch confessed it. But what he did when he confessed it is he, he pulled up alongside the truth that was already there. So when you and I make a confession, what we're doing is we're just saying what is already true. So when we become Christians and someone says, uh, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And we say, oh, I believe that with all my heart. That's why I'm changing my life. That's why my, the old me is dying. I believe Jesus is the son of God. All we've done is we've pulled up alongside the truth. Well, when we sin later in life, because we will, we'll fall short and we'll sin. First John 1 promises that. It's very comforting. But when we do that, what happens when we confess that sin, whether to another person or to God? It's true whether or not you and I confess it. All we're doing is we're pulling up alongside the truth when we confess. We're saying the same word that's already true. It's also what confession is. Now, what does confession look like? I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5 for just a second. And if you haven't really ever studied this verse, I know most of us have probably read the Bible through at least once. So I know you've read it. But if you haven't thought about this verse, it's a very encouraging verse. But as you're turning there, here's what we'll lay out that we're going to be walking through in just a minute. Confession, what does it look like? Confession, confession is always going to involve three things. Confession is always going to involve a wrongdoing, a heartfelt and sincere acknowledgement of that wrongdoing, and then admitting that to someone outside of yourself. So confession is always going to admit a wrongdoing, a heartfelt and sincere acknowledgement of that wrongdoing, and admitting it to someone outside of yourself. So as you're in 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5, it says this, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You know, as we read that, we think about a lot of sin that, that we know about that David had in his life. Sometimes he would make just rash decisions that didn't line up with God's will. We know he uh, levied a census on the people, even though that was not the will of God. And so we can think about additional sin in David's life, other than just Uriah and Bathsheba and all that went with that. So how is the Bible able to say that that's the only time that David turned to the left or to the right? Well, the difference in this sin, in the matter of Bathsheba and in the matter of Uriah, is that David committed a sin that was a high-handed sin, a rebellious sin, uh, not the kind of sin from 1 John chapter 1 as we're walking towards God in the light that we're continually cleansed from. And I'm thankful. If we weren't, we could live in a state where we're a lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved throughout the day just by doing the best that we can. But praise God, that's not the way it works. So what was different in David's situation? He turned his back on what God wanted. He knew it. It was a rebellious, high-handed, intentional, purposeful sin that he did not want to acknowledge and own up to and admit and have sorrow about. So in this sin, David stopped walking in the light and he turned his back on God. That was a wrongdoing. Then number two, look at Psalm chapter 51. And if I were you, if you take notes in your Bible, you need to link up Psalm chapter 51 and 1 Kings 15, 5. So 1 Kings 15, 5, put see Psalm 51. Psalm 51, say, see 1 Kings 15, 5. But Psalm chapter 51 is the record of David's repentance and confession in the matter of Uriah. 
In Psalm 51, 1 through 3, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and sin is ever before me. Do you see how David felt about the sin in his life? He knew he had done wrong. He did it whether he admitted it or not. But confession requires a wrongdoing, and it requires a heartfelt acknowledgement of the wrongdoing. Sounds a lot like Luke chapter 15. We read about the prodigal son as he's thinking about returning. He rehearses this sermon, this speech to his dad in his head over and over. And he says, you know, I'm not worthy to be even my dad's slave or servant and uh, not even his son. But maybe, maybe he'll take me in perchance as a servant. And so he goes to his father and, you know, his father is already looking for him, hoping he'll come back like God does with us. And he sees him a long way off and he runs to him and he hugs him and he doesn't even listen to the speech. Now, God knows what's in our heart and in our minds and we confess things to God that we may not confess to others. And so the situation doesn't hold true exactly to our example. But the point is this. He had confessed. He had repented. He had a speech ready to prepare because he had a heartfelt, sincere feeling about what he had done. There was a wrongdoing. There was a heartfelt and sincere acknowledgement of the wrongdoing. And then finally, confession involves admitting these things to a person outside of yourself. In Psalm 51, if you keep reading verses 4 through 12, David admits this, this sin to God. And because it was recorded, David admits it to us as well. There was wrongdoing, heartfelt, sincere acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, and it was admitted to a person outside of himself. Now, I want to make... One disclaimer about confession, it's usually, when we read about it in Scripture, to God. As you read through every instance of confess, confess, confession in the Bible, which I did, you'll see that the majority of those are towards God, but, like our verse in James, not always, not exclusively. And number two, when we see confession, it's usually something that's said out loud, but not always. So remember our text for the evening. James chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another. Now, let me ask you this before we get into the application of the, these ideas. We've defined confession and we've broken down what, it, what elements have to be involved for it to be a true confession. And now we'll get into some more practical ways that you and I can apply it. But before we do that, think about this. How does the church usually confess sin? I mean, you in your personal life, as you have confessed sin, as you've seen people at church deal with it and struggle with sin, how have you usually seen it confessed? Well, it's usually one of two ways. There are exceptions, thankfully, but typically we see one of two things. One, someone comes down on a Sunday morning, comes down forward to the front aisle, and they have something they've written and they hand it to an elder, or they write something on a card and they have it read from the pulpit. And typically, that confession will be, I have sinned, please forgive me, or I'm struggling, please pray for me. Or, number two, we usually just don't do it. And these are typically the two ways that we see confession to each other handled. So the question is this. If we have ignored this command, and I think by and large we have, how can we apply it? What does it look like to confess? How should we do it? So the first thing I want to talk about this is this. What does confession, from a biblical perspective, What's the benefit? Now, not every command God gives us has an explanation with it. Sometimes God says, do it because I'm sovereign. I'm in charge. I know this is best for you. And this is the way I want it done. But with confession, can we see some benefits from it 
from scripture. What does confession do for us? Well, the first thing is you got to know this confession is for your benefit. It may not feel like it in a time when we uh, try to keep things to ourselves, that we keep struggles and imperfections to ourselves. It may seem like the last thing we need to do is let anybody know about it. But the Bible proves that confession is actually given to God for us, for our benefit. Think about this. God asked Adam and Eve where they were and what they had done. Did God really need to ask them for information? Think about when Cain killed Abel. Cain was asked by God, uh, where is your brother? And so he says, replies, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Why did God ask these individuals? And we could go on and on. Well, he didn't ask for information. He asked for the benefit of the person he was asking. He knew he did it for their own good. Confession's the same way. It's not for the benefit of God, but it's for our benefit so that we can see the truth that's already there and pull up alongside it. You know, the sins that you struggle with the most, the most persistent ones, the ones that have tripped you up time and time again, the ones that keep growing back like a bad weed. Do you make a habit of confessing those sins to other Christians? If your answer is no, then your struggle with that sin will likely not come to an end anytime soon. God commands it, and it's for our benefit. Number two, it forgives us of our sins. Now, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, the immediate context is being forgiven by God. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Now, only, ultimately, only God can completely forgive, but we also need the forgiveness of others. And second time, we won't get into that, but it helps us to be forgiven of our sins. Number three, have you ever seen that confession exposes darkness to the light? Have you ever wondered why you struggle with the same sin over and over? And maybe it's a sin you've had a harder time with than others. Maybe you've had it your whole life. Ask yourself this. Who knows about it? Sin is always stronger in the darkness. I think the number one thing that Satan wants us to do with our sin is to make sure we keep it in a part of our lives and we try to keep everybody in the world away from it. Don't let anybody know about it at all costs. Schedule your day around the lies, the routines, the rituals that it takes to keep that sin intact and hidden from other people. I believe Satan wants us to keep all our sin in the dark, but when you confess, you expose that darkness to the light and let the healing power of Jesus into it. The power of sin is always stronger when it's secret. The temptations of a secret sin will always pull harder. The hopelessness of a secret uh, of sin will always feel deeper. The lies of a secret sin will always sound more convincing. But something happens to sin when we put it out on the table in front of other Christians. It withers in the light. How many people have committed sins, fallen even from places of respect uh, or power because they did something in private they thought that they would have never done with an audience? And so when we expose darkness to the light, it takes away a lot of the power. Proverbs 28, 13 proves that. It says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will attain mercy. Job 42, 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what they did in the Bible when they had sin in their life? They made a big deal of it. They restored the law. They added festivals. They stood as the law was read all day. They changed their life. Job repented in sackcloth and ashes. And we could go on and on with example. What do we like to do with our sin? 
keep it as secret as possible when we notice so nobody will find out. What did they do in the Bible? They exposed the darkness to the light. They confessed their sins. They made a big show of it, not for the sake of the show itself, but so that the seriousness of sin would sink into them and they could get the help that they needed around them. Number four, when you confess your sins, it's going to provide accountability. I used to work out with weights in the gym. I promise I did. Don't be rude. I still do some, not as much as I, I should, but I love to work out with weights. And, and one of the workouts that you can do is the bench press, which is just what it sounds. You lay on a bench and you press the weight up. But what's important when you do that, if you don't have a machine that helps you with that, is that you have someone called a spotter. And you may have two, uh, one on either side of the weight. Or you may have just one back behind you looking down um, and, and helping to hold up the weight. But one of the things that's most important when you do that workout is to have a spotter and to have someone who pays attention and stays close. Someone that stands behind you, has their hand close to the bar and looks into your eyes to make sure that you're okay. You're the one responsible for doing the work. Ultimately, the responsibility lies with you, but you're not really alone. You're attacking the weight together. That's what accountability is. It's part of the reason that we confess our sins is so that we have help fighting it. Accountability is fighting sin together. You don't want to be working out in the gym and you've actually picked a weight that's 20 pounds too heavy. And where's your spotter? You have to look around and find him. He's gone. You need a spotter that can be there and look you in your eyes so they know the struggles you're going through and know when you need help and when you can do it on your own. That's what Galatians 6, 1 through 2 is talking about, that idea of the, the weight of sin and the struggles that we have. It says, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A spotter that's gone home for the day can't help you with the weight you're struggling with. A Christian that's not close enough to look you in the eyes can't hold you accountable. If I can't bench press all the weight, I don't need to look around for my spotter. He needs to be close enough to look me in the eyes. Accountability doesn't work from a distance. We have to let people into our life to hold us accountable. I need to confess to people close enough to look into my eyes. If we can't get help living right and getting better from the people in this, this room, uh, in our Christian fellowship, who's going to help us? No one. We need a small group of people fighting for us. Jesus had the multitudes. He had the disciples, he had the apostles, and he had that inner group of three. We need people that fight with us and for us to hold up our hands like Aaron and her did for Moses. You know, if I were to make a list tonight of all the people in the Bible that did it on their own, this is what the list would look like. Blank. We might be tempted to think that Jesus did, but right before Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and he's given the Holy Spirit. And as soon as the temptation ends, he's ministered to by angels, and he selects his first disciples. Jesus was smart enough and set a divine precedence for us to say, don't do it alone. Now, there are moments when we're going to have to be on our, own, on our own. We're going to have to be alone. And there's no way around that. That's part of life. But it's not too healthy to be on our own for too long. Think about Joseph. He's the only person I can think of that, that came close to doing it on his own. But when he sees his brothers again and, and the end of the book, Genesis chapter 50, see how he reacts to his brothers. He breaks down and he weeps. Why? He's not a whole, not a healthy, not a complete person because he's had to do too much on his own. But Jesus was smart enough to give us an example to say, look, there are times you have to be on your own, but it's not healthy to do it completely on your own for too long. So we all need each other.
And that leads into this, number five, it admits our weakness and the need for God. Confession says, I can't do this on my own. Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge and strength. Where does your strength come from? Well, really, the only strength I have comes from God. He's a very present help in trouble. God is our strength. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, the problem is some of us are, are very clever. We're smart. We're healthy. We're financially healthy. We're fit. We're good looking. We're funny. We're charismatic. The problem is we lean on that as if it were something that we created out of nowhere instead of special skills, talents, abilities, opportunities that God had given us. Lean on your own understanding, fall every time. Lean on God, who's our strength and refuge. That's a recipe for success. When I confess, one thing I'm doing is saying, I don't know everything, but I know the one who does. I want to cast my burden on the Lord because he'll sustain me, Psalm 55, 22. You know, when I confess my sin to God or to others, it admits my weakness, my need for God, my need for the church that he established. And then, so that's what confession does does for me. That's what confession does for you. But what about the people in your life? If you go to, I would say, a typical congregation where confession to each other has never been practiced, and you start confessing sin to people privately and they help you through things, it's going to be one of the greatest blessings of your life. But what's it going to do for the other people at the congregation, the people around you, the people that you choose to open up to? Well, the first thing is that it's going to show others that they're not alone. Think about Hebrews chapter 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. We have this great cloud of witnesses, as it were, that are surrounding us, watching the race, looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And they are literally cheering us on. They know what we've been through. They know the struggles. They know the temptations, the downfalls, the weight of the guilt when we mess up and when we fall and we fell and we let people down. But they're literally surrounding us, cheering us on. You know, we also could have that same thing with the people in our congregation. If we would be honest enough, if we would be willing, if we would be open and transparent, if we would confess some of the sin that we're trying to carry alone so that they could bear that burden, we could have that with the people that are fans of the digital Bible study. We could have that with Christians that we haven't even met in person, but we know them well online. I've never met Jonathan in person. I've met Eric a lot of, of times, but how are Jonathan and I able to be friends? Because we have that connection in Christ. We could do that with the people in our local congregation, and that's what it would do for the church where we are. When you confess your sins to each other, you're showing other people that they're not alone either and that you're there for them. You know, I love 2 Corinthians 7, 6. I think about this verse all the time. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 says, God who comforts the downcast. Now, how does God comfort the downcast? I don't know all of the ways that he does that, and you don't either. There are a lot of things God does for us. Praise God, we may never understand. But here's one of the ways that he sometimes comforts us. The end of the verse, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Sometimes God comforts us. And sometimes one way that he does that is by sending other people. You're not in the Christian fight alone. You've got all the people of Hebrews chapter 11. You've got the author and finisher of our faith at the end of the finish line, looking for you, waiting for you, cheering you on, understanding every step of the way. Hebrews chapter 12. But then you've got the glorious church, the bride of Christ that God has given us, these friendships in Christ that are for more than talking about sports and hobbies and vacations and money, and, but they're for talking about spiritual things. We can talk to others, and we do, about all those other things that are just icing on the cake. 
But the core things, the most important things, we need each other for that. And when we confess, it shows other people you're not alone and I'm rooting for you in this. And it makes it okay for them to do that as well. And the next thing it does is that it allows other people to pray for you. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is teaching in Samaria, and he's performing miracles to prove that what they say and what they're teaching is true, of course. The gospel is having great success in converting people. One of the men that's converted, you know, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. In verses 14 through 17, Peter and John come to town. They lay hands on some of them so they can receive the Holy Spirit. And this amazes Simon. To see a real miracle when he's used to performing sleight of hand and tricks catches his attention. And so he offers to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen to verses 18 through 24, the apostles' reaction to that. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me the power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wicked, wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, here's the key for our discussion. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now, when a brother and sister is uh, hears of your struggling with sin, the most natural compelling thing for them to do is to pray for you. Your brothers and sisters cannot pray for your battle against sin if they're not aware of it. The point here is to confess our faults to each other so that we can better pray for each other. You know, remember one of the reasons the person in the text of James chapter 5 is sick is because of some of the sin in their life. If they're asking someone to pray for it, wouldn't it make sense if the other person knew what that sin was? You know, I wouldn't think there would be anything wrong with going forward like we do. There can be some value in keeping private things private. There can be some value in having an entire room full of Christians pray for you in a general way. Even when we put those things on Facebook, I mean, I often think I've had sick kids, sick wife, been in weird situations, scary situations health-wise with friends and family, and I can instantly put on Facebook, please pray for a situation or please pray for this kid of mine. And to have 2,000 other Christians stop and to pray for that person, what would you pay for that if you had to pay for it? And we get that for free. But I, I would imagine that a general prayer, typically done in a general way, might even produce general results. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't seem to me to be a fulfillment of James chapter 5 and verse 16. There's much more personal, much more intimate, much more open and honesty in that confession. Wouldn't it be better if we have an unspoken request, if we were to go find a Christian and speak that request to them. Don't underestimate the importance of others praying for you. Praying for one another is vitally important in our battle against sin, a battle against the sins that continue to trip us up because James says prayer has a great power as it's working, but only if we confess it so that other people can pray specifically for us and for it. And then finally, in this idea, what does confession do for the church? Well, the first thing is that it brings us closer together and it builds community. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's what we want out of our life in every way possible, anything that's wrong or anything that's false. That's what confession is, right? Coming alongside the truth. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
You know, it feels like in direct violation of this verse, what we want to do is put up a beautiful face that understands everything, knows everything, hasn't learned anything. Well, we did in the past, but not recently. And we get everything right and everything is a whopping success. When in reality, we're this shadow of that person, a different version, the true version. But what Paul is challenging us to do, what the Bible is challenging us to do, is to be members one of another. Lock, stock, and barrel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, forgiving one another is a continual thing. Remember, there can't be forgiveness without confession. There can't be a confession without wrongdoing, the heartfelt acknowledgement of it, and saying it to someone outside of yourself. A church that is continually forgiving one another, they're not perfect. They often fail. But because they're not perfect, they confess and they make it right. The second thing that confession can do for your church is that it can promote reconciliation, actual, genuine healing. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, it says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In Numbers chapter 5, verses 7, 5 through 7, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. He shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did the wrong. This is more than just a confession to God. This is a confession to each other and a, a restoration, a reconciliation. And it involves confession to each other. When our actions and attitude have offended others, I mean, if I said who is perfect, no one watching this would raise their hand. But then we sometimes go through life and act like we are. But we realize the absurdity of it when we say it out loud. So since none of us are perfect, why is it so hard sometimes for us to admit that? I mean, people know when we've messed up. They know when we've sinned. Whether or not we pull up alongside that truth or not depends completely on us. And we need to do it so that re relationship can be reconciled. And this will be our last point in this idea, and then we'll wrap up hopefully with some practical ways, if you've never seen this done or never done it, that you can apply it in your life and your church right now. But remember this. Remember when we talked about Philip and Simon in Acts chapter 8 a few minutes ago? They were in Samaria. And do you remember who came to town to, to lay hands on the new Christians? Peter and John, right? This isn't the first time that John has been to Samaria. If you back up and look in the Gospels, you can see a previous time that he was there. So if you have your Bible open to Acts 8, make a note that says Luke 9, 51 through 56. And then over in Luke 9, 51 through 56, make a note that says Acts 8. This is what Luke 9, 51 through 56 says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers, Jesus, of course, ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And you know the conflict between Samaritans and the Jews. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, such a great man of faith, wrote books of the Bible. Let's see what their attitude was towards being rejected. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Jesus got on to them, and he said uh, not to do that. Then verse 56, they went on to another village. Jesus' primary concern is not punishment, but reconciliation. 
The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants to see everybody repent. He wants to see everybody's relationships reconciled with each other and ultimately with God. And he came and lived a perfect life and died a cruel death so that that could happen. So his primary concern is not punishment, but reconciliation. He delayed the punishment of the Samaritans because he knew if they hear, eventually the truth will wear on them and they'll become Christians. And when someone confesses sin, that's the church's primary response and concern as well. Not punishment. They're probably going through enough already, but reconciliation. And so there can only be that forgiveness and that reconciliation if there's confession about the wrong that's been done. So who should we confess our sins to? Now, we've discussed one another and what that means. It's more than just God, though he's our primary source of confession. But it also isn't everyone. Unfortunately, not everyone is a good candidate for you to open up to, to be honest with, to be transparent with about everything in your life. The first group I would say that wouldn't be good candidates would be non-Christians. And I'm not saying they can't help us. Counseling, even Christian counseling, uh, Christian worldview counselor can be very, very helpful and is a great decision for a lot of people. But by and large, our friends who are not Christians can't help us in this exact intimate way in which we need it. This isn't really for them out there, but it's for God's people. So non-Christians can't be as helpful with this. What about gossips or unworthy, untrustworthy people? Well, how do you find out? Well, I would suggest not jumping all in and telling everyone you meet about everything you deal with, but maybe trying out one person or a group of two people at a time and reminding them about the need for confidentiality. How sad would it be if someone couldn't use you to carry out this often neglected command because they couldn't trust you? Proverbs eleven thirteen says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Um, David Shannon said in his 40 Reasons People Don't Like You from Proverbs lesson that we as Christians ought to be experts at concealing secrets. And of course, not the scandalous kind like some religious groups have gotten in trouble with, but just the things that are nobody else's business. They're not hurting anyone else and they don't apply to anyone else. And so Christians ought to be an expert at knowing some things in life about ourselves, about others, about the world that we don't tell with anybody just because there's no reason to do it. And then finally, I would say, so one another, not everyone, and then finally, not everything. In Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist says, bear fruit in repentance and keeping with repentance. In Acts 19, 19, it says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, Paul there in Ephesus. So did they talk about everything they had ever done? No, but they brought the thing that they were called up with. They brought the thing that the whole camp was caught up with, and they made a public showing of getting rid of it. Not every sin demands a public confession. I mean, can you think how exhausting it would be if every member publicly confessed everything that they had done wrong throughout a week? We couldn't get through a church service because we would have so many things to talk about. So not every sin is going to demand a public or a private confession to each other. But I suspect that God would be glorified. This command would be kept. And churches would be strengthened if there was more public confession and private confession and godly sorrow in all of us. So now I want to end with this. If you look back at the book of James chapter 5, let's look at this verse, this idea in its context. And look at verse 13. Have you ever noticed this? Verse 13 says, pray for yourself. Verse 15 says that you call the elders of the church and you have them pray for you. 
And verse 16 says that we're to pray for each other. So think about a sickness that you've had, or think about maybe a sin, a spiritual sickness that you've been struggling with. Think about how much better you would handle that sin if you prayed for yourself, you asked the leaders of your congregation to pray for you, and you found a small group of trustworthy Christians that were trying to help you get to that finish line, help you be more like Jesus every day on the way, and they prayed for you about the specific thing that you're going through as well. We're in a war, not with flesh and blood. We're in a battle against spiritual darkness. And in this battle, which piece of the armor of God could you do without? Can you do without truth? Can you do without righteousness, peace, readiness, faith, or the word of God, salvation? What would the fight look like against the devil without one of these pieces of the armor of God? Now, it's the same thing with confession. It might be that we say to God, I am struggling with a sin. Why don't you take this away from me? And God looks down out of heaven and says, tell me what you've done. And if we're only able to say, I've asked you for help, and I've just tried to do better by my own efforts, God may say, well, you're not overcoming it because you're not using all of the tools that I've given you. And confession is something that can't be coerced on us. Religious groups have made that mistake over the years. You have to tell the preacher. Uh, you have to tell someone. But it's only something that we can voluntarily do if it's going to be done right. If you don't confess your sins, you're going into battle without one of the powerful tools from God. And James 5.16 isn't a command that I've seen carried out very well in congregations over the years, but it doesn't have to be that way. We can change things. Just like when the law was discovered in the temple in the Old Testament, they started observing it immediately. It can start with you, and it can start with me. So how do you do it at your congregation? You find one or two people in your congregation who don't go and tell everything to everybody all the time, and you talk to them about the sin that trips you up so often. You ask for their help with that. You ask for their prayers about that specific thing. You check back with them and you ask them, please follow up with me. I'm not, this is not a one-time walk down front. Nobody ever talks to me about it again kind of thing. I need you to check up with me each night, each morning. Uh, can you imagine a guy who's trying to overcome pornography and he's tried and he's tried and he's tried his whole life, but he keeps his computer in a private space. He has a phone with a password that nobody knows. He's never talked to his wife or girlfriend about it. He's never talked to any of his close friends about it. None of his preachers, none of his elders. What are that guy's odds of overcoming this sin? Very slim. What if that same man changes? He puts his computer in a private place. He takes the password off. As a matter of fact, he gives his passwords to all of his passwords, to everything to his wife. And he tells a few minute church, here's something I'm struggling with. You know what he'll find? Maybe as many as 50% of those men will say, me too. It's about time we worked on this together. And he'll have help. We can change things. It can start with us. Pick two or three people, form a group, tell them you love them, tell them that you need them, and confess any sins that you're having trouble handling on your own. I wanted to put up some contact information in case you have any questions, if you'd like to see any of the notes uh, or the verses that I shared, and I have a lot of information I wasn't able to share for the sake of time, you can email me, matt, at housetohouse.com, uh, or you can look me up on Facebook, facebook.com slash Matthew Lofton Wallen, and uh, we'll talk. If you would like to confess, but you don't know how that would work, reach out to me, and I'll, I'll tell you some things you can do, maybe not do, and you can find somebody in your area, somebody you're already friends with, and you can start some accountability, some confession, and hopefully some healing. So that's all I've got tonight. Thanks so much for your